Chapter 16 Pacing amongst the clothing racks in Kmart's fashion section, I spoke into my cell phone in the most menacing voice I could conjure, if you ever want to see your quilts again, do exactly as I say. A woman perusing blouses nearby gave me a side glance, then shuffled away in a hurry. Cheryl, who was on the other end of the call, said, What are you talking about? Who is this? Did you get my text? What text? Check your texts. Five minutes earlier, I'd sent her a picture of her quilt collection stuffed into two open garbage bags. A moment passed, then Cheryl let out a sound between a gasp and a shriek. The joyous Christmas music playing over the PA made her anguish even more pronounced. I felt bad for her, but I steeled myself. This woman was an accessory to murder. What did you do to them, she said, breathless. If you want to see your quilts again, do exactly as I say. In the library at the Humboldt Historical Society, on top of the bookshelf against the west wall, there is a pill bottle. Bring it to the Kmart in McKinleyville. Give the clerk at the service desk your name and leave the bottle with him. If you tell anyone about this, I will know. If you tamper with the contents of the bottle, I will know. Once I have the bottle in my possession, I'll give you the location of your quilts. You have 30 minutes. Do you understand? Yes, she said with defiance in her voice that made me worry about the soundness of my pan for the hundredth time. I hung up and got in line at the service desk to let them know I was expecting a package. I had the bottle of shampoo in my coat pocket in case I had to pay a fee like last time. The same clerk was behind the counter, just as slow as before. Earlier, I'd found Cheryl's full name, phone number and address with just 10 minutes of internet research. I'd never broken into a house before but the whole thing had gone smoothly, beginner's luck I supposed, no guard dogs, no nosy neighbors, no alarms. Using my hatred for Brad as an accelerant to burn away any jitters, I jumped the backyard fence, threw a rock through a window, then used that same rock to break the glass doors on the locked cabinet where Cheryl kept all her quilt totems. After stuffing them all into two trash bags, I'd stashed them in the dumpster behind the McDonald's across the parking lot. Now I was here in line feeling pretty proud of myself. As I listened to Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You for the second time, I got a text from a strange number, a picture of my sister in her bakery next to a countertop display of candy. On the other side of the display was Warren, the sociopath who'd kidnapped me at gunpoint two days earlier. Under the picture was a bubble of text that read, Look who loves my artisan lollipops. I always say it's easier to give candy to a baby than to take it. I think young Emily ate three caramels. Nothing better than a child's smile. I dashed to the front of the line and slapped my hand on the desk. Hey. This is an emergency. I heard grumbling behind me and turned on them. This is an emergency. I'm sorry sir but you have to wait your turn, the clerk said. I pulled out the shampoo, pooped the lid, and rubbed my finger on the tiniest bit of shampoo residue. The pain voices exploded through me and were gone in an instant. The clerk's head jerked back, then bobbled a little, his eyes wide. I said, there's a lady coming in here, Cheryl Glanton. She's dropping off a package for me in the next half hour. Just keep it safe for me. My name's Charlie Allison. I gotta go somewhere right now but I'll be back. He seemed stunned. Got it? 
Um. There will be an extra fee for keeping it in our safe. I waved at him as I speed walked away. That's fine. That's fine. On the way to the car, I called my sister. She didn't answer. I called her again and again. No answer. Her bakery was just on the other side of town in an old gas station we'd converted a year ago. I ran two red lights on the way, screeched to a stop in the parking lot, and burst through the door. A couple sat at one table, and an older man sat at another. Warren was nowhere in sight. But the candy display from the picture was on the counter, demolishing any hope that Warren had photoshopped his message. May was in the kitchen, removing her mini bunt cakes from their pan and setting them on a tray. I could tell she was upset by her pursed lips and the quick, jerky way she moved. She wore an apron and her hair was up. I went behind the counter. What's wrong? Oh my god, she said, dropping a bun cake. She charged straight for me and hit me with a hug. What is wrong with you, she said, letting go. Your phone was going straight to voicemail yesterday, and then you weren't answering today. I called the police and reported you missing. Oh my god, I'm so happy to see you. Are you okay? Have you been sleeping? Where were you? I'm sorry I didn't call. I'll explain everything in a little bit, but first. I pulled up the photo of Warren and the candy. What exactly did this man do while he was here? Warren. How'd you get that picture? He sent it to me. He's a very bad man. He seemed nice to me. He just wanted to sell his artisan candy in the bakery. You didn't eat any of it, did you? Why are you yelling at me, Charlie? Did you eat any? Yes, of course. I'm not going to sell something I don't try. How do you feel? I said. Fine, she said. Calm down. Now tell me where you've been. She went back to the mini bunt cakes. She always did that, compulsively worked when there was drama in her life, adversity. Working was her therapy. No matter what was happening around her, she continued to bake, like nothing was wrong, like the whole world wasn't falling apart. What did the psychopath in khakis feed my family? If they'd been given bloom, May would be in the seasons by now. But she wasn't, clearly. I tried to remember all the other cackle poisons Kalia had mentioned, and what they did. I remembered one poison enhanced pattern recognition, one took away object permanence, and another enhanced sense memory, and was used recreationally. And there were probably more. Then there was the one that lunatic with the miniature golf course in the woods had given his ex-wife. I grabbed a chunk of chocolate lying on the prep table and held it up. Do you see this? I said, and when she looked at the chocolate, I put it behind my back. Is the chocolate gone now? Her lips were pursed again. This isn't funny, Charlie. Is the chocolate behind my back or is it gone? It's behind your back, Charlie, she said. And you better put it back. I need that. What is wrong with you? Are you okay? You're not trying to become a street magician again, are you? Because that was pathetic. I was about to ask her what the smell of chocolate reminded her of, 
when I realized Emily wasn't helping in the kitchen like she usually did after school. Did Em eat the candy? I said. Of course. She's our candy expert. I wasn't going to carry something she didn't know. My sister's eyes lost focus and her mouth dropped open. May? I said. She didn't respond. I went to her, clapped in front of her face. Nothing. I was about to shake her when I heard a scream come from the upstairs apartment where my sister and M lived. I ran to the back of the kitchen, up the stairs, and threw open the apartment door. M was bundled up in a blanket on the living room couch, still screaming. Cartoons played on the television. I ran around the couch, kneeled in front of her, grabbed her shoulders. What's wrong? I said. Her eyes were open but unfocused. I lifted her blanket and checked her body for wounds, blood. I found nothing. Are you okay? What's wrong? Then M focused her eyes on me. Are you okay? I said. She tried to wrinkle her smooth forehead. Yeah. But she sounded unsure. My mind raced. What had they done to my family? I had a nightmare, Em said. It felt real. You were there. You were fighting a cowboy for Montgomery Ward. Montgomery Ward's was a department store that had gone out of business before Em was born. How did she know about them? From old catalogs she used to make her collages? And why would they hire me to fight a cowboy? Was she delirious with fever? I placed the inside of my wrist on her forehead. It wasn't hot. Then these people were chasing us, she said. You made a tunnel in the dirt. Then this giant centipede showed up. While rubbing her back to comfort her, I called Lou. Again he didn't answer, so I tried texting him this time. Emergency. This is Charlie who saved your son. My family's been poisoned. I need your help. Two minutes later, Lou texted back, Where are you? Why hadn't I thought of texting earlier? He was clearly one of those people that didn't answer strange numbers or listen to their voicemails. I gave him the address and he responded, Don't leave her sight. Don't let her go to sleep. I'll be there in an hour. That reminded me of my sister. She'd eaten the candy too and was in a state when I left her. I led him downstairs where we found May working in the kitchen, no longer comatose. Are you okay? I said. Yeah, May said, pulling the last mini cake out of the pan. Sorry about that. I spaced out there for a little bit. Spaced out? I said. You were unresponsive. I had a nightmare, Mom, Em said, like she was proud of it. It was so real. There was this crazy centipede monster. May gave her daughter a startled and confused look. Centipede. What color was it? It was black with yellow legs, and it had a blue head. May looked like she'd seen a rat run through her kitchen. Are you okay? I said. Yeah, she said, almost like a honk, then set the pan in the sink. Em, do you mind starting another pot of coffee for me? I almost couldn't stand it. My world was falling apart, and my family had no clue what was happening. They thought this was a normal afternoon.
While M made coffee and small talk with one of the customers, May came over to me and whispered, I had the same dream. Or nightmare or whatever, just a minute ago. She rested her forehead on my shoulder. Are we going crazy like mom? I can't. I can't do that to M. What is happening? I put an arm around her. You're not going crazy. We're not going crazy. It's the candy. It was poisoned with cackle. It's an infectious form of consciousness, among other things. And we are carriers of it. Everybody is. And it's contagious under certain circumstances. It travels through the air like magical pheromones. If you get infected with it, your symptoms and side effects will vary depending on which species the cackle comes from. Mom wasn't crazy. The Mobiacs she always talked about are real. We are Mobiacs. Mom's one too. That's probably why she's addicted to heroin. Turns out opiates are a cheap and ugly way to treat all kinds of cackle-related problems. May pulled away from my arm, stepped back and cocked her head. I sighed. Don't look at me that way. I'm getting plenty of sleep. And sleep wasn't mom's problem anyway. She wasn't manic-depressive. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Do you remember? What? May was looking over my shoulder out the front of the store. Is that your bus? I turned around and there it was, my repossessed bus in the parking lot, Lost Coast Excursions still painted on the side. I felt a pang in my heart like the first time seeing a girlfriend, after she dumped me. And she was with the anybody but him, new boyfriend. Kayak Brad was in the driver's seat. The rest of the seats were empty. He was alone. Why was he here? Was this a trap? Had Warren poisoned my family just to lure me here to be recaptured? I turned back to May. Take him upstairs and lock the door. Excuse me, she said. Please. I have customers. Just trust me. Charlie, how can I trust you when you're acting like mom? If they wouldn't hide, I had to fight. I had to protect my family, find out what Warren had given them and how to treat it. But I couldn't do that if I was taken again. Winning a straight-up fight against Brad would be hard enough in a normal world. He was bigger and stronger. Add his magic to the equation, and I had no chance. Luckily, he hadn't moved from his seat. He was busy doing something on his phone. So I did something on mine and called Lou. This time he answered, yo. Can you get here any faster? Sure, if I was a bird, I'd just flap my wings and fly there. I'm coming as fast as I can, doughboy. They're here. Who? The people behind whatever's going on. The people who took your son. How many? One. Lou Gaffod. One. That's an insult. If your bond hadn't filled me in on the particulars of your particular predicament, I would say grow some balls. But given the circumstances, I'm gonna be charitable. She taught you the basics of riding the ghost, right? Yeah, kind of. Then do that and clobber that asshole. I don't have bloom or totems. They were in the car outside where Brad was. Okay.
Relax. Listen. You need to ride the ghost of a fighting whorl if you want to fight, right? Well, here's the story. A punch in the face can be used as a totem to enter a fighting whorl. That's for every family line I ever heard of. As for bloom, any kind of pain can be used as bloom, stub your toe, bust your lip. Hot peppers. Those are good. Only reason people use bloom is to control the intensity and length of the whorl. So is there someone nearby who can punch you in the face? I looked around. Maybe. Okay then. There you go. That should hold him off till I get there. But know this, you can't use the same punch as Bloom and Totem. But you can use two punches, one to get the cackle going, and the other to graft to. Or you can use something else for the Bloom. Whatever. And what does a fighting world do for me again? Are you kidding? You ride the ghost of a fighting whorl, and you come back with the combined fighting knowledge and reflexes of all your ancestors for as long as your cackle stays up. When I got off the phone, May said, Who was that? Someone who's coming to help. Help with what? Charlie, you're scaring me. Who's driving your bus? I'll explain everything later, but I don't have time right now. I know I seem crazy. But I'm not crazy. The man on the bus is Kayak Brad, the one I told you about. Turns out he wants to do much more harm to me than just tank my business. I can't let him do that. I stepped around my sister, strode to the walk-in refrigerator, and pulled the latch. The door opened with a clank and a burp. Cool air wafted out, turning white as it hit the warm kitchen. There was a little white tub May kept jalapenos in for her cheddar and jalapeno croissants. I grabbed three. I didn't bother asking May for what I needed next. I knew she wouldn't do it. So I went to the dining area, to the man sitting alone. He had gray hair but he looked robust enough. There was a half-finished crossword puzzle by his coffee. Excuse me sir. Can you punch me in the face please? I was in too much of a hurry to be self-conscious about how crazy that sounded. I'd really appreciate it. What? I need you to punch me in the face. Please. I fished for an explanation that might make sense to a normal person. It's a medical condition I have. If I don't experience blunt trauma occasionally, I'll get seizures. Please. Sir. I'll call you a doctor, son, but I'm not going to hit you. I went to the cash register, opened the cash drawer, and pulled out all the twenties. Charlie, May said. Stop. What are you doing? I glanced at the bus. Brad was still inside, looking down at his phone. M stood by the coffee pot, mouth agape. I threw one jalapeno in my mouth, chomp chomp, two, chomp chomp. The heat burned my throat and tongue, ignited my sinuses, made me cough. Pain voices enveloped my face. I held up the money and addressed the room. I have about $200 here. I'll give it to whoever punches me in the face. Anyone? I went to the couple and waved the money at the man. $200. Easiest money you ever made. He looked at May. Stop this right now, May said. Please don't make me call the cops on you. She looked at the couple. 
I'm so sorry guys. Chair legs squawked against the floor and the woman stood, said fuck it, then snatched the money from my hand and decked me. Yes. I focused on the sharp and dull pains reverberating from the blow, and I grafted to them, spouting my Pictionary poems out loud. Thunderdome crowd noise, wet blanket tooth decay, Charlie Brown teacher talk, weaponized Nixon jowls. In a swirl of multicolored, luminescent screaming particles, the world was undone and remade in the form of a room with dark hardwood floors and paisley wallpaper. Sunlight beamed in from a window on the far wall. An imposing bookshelf and an upright piano bookended the room. In the center were three dainty little chairs and a small round table with white lace flowing over the sides. There was a 15-foot gap between the ceiling and where the walls ended. Above each wall, beyond the crown molding, people were jammed into five rows of bleacher seats. The light was sparse up there but not so sparse that I couldn't see their faces, brads every last one of them.